note before we start today's episode, which is the 141st version of the explainer. Hosting this show is one of the best parts of my job and recording each episode is always my favorite time of the week. But change is always welcome as well. So from next week on, I will be swapping the microphone for, I don't know, a rattle as I'm heading off on maternity leave for the next nine months or so. I'll be replaced by two regular contributors most of you will be really familiar with, our reporters Michelle Hennessy and Gronyany A. I leave you in their very capable hands and look forward myself to listening to news without the noise on the explainer in the weeks to come and the months to come. But I also wanted to take this opportunity to thank all of you, our loyal and dedicated listeners, for the support you've shown to this podcast over the past three years, as well as me as host. Catch you all again very soon. Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, why is there so much talk about Ireland's cows at the moment? You'll have likely heard some debate on the radio or television in recent weeks about our so-called national herd, the number of cattle on Irish farms. It was likely a farming representative and an environmentalist put out head-to-head to discuss climate change and climate action. The point was probably made that we're talking about Irish cows too much, or maybe too little. Over the past six weeks, the Good Information Project has been trying to put out, well, good information ahead of COP26 so we can all have informed chats about what the planet needs from us all. Because we're an island of farmers and farming is so integral and important to so many of our families, it is natural that those conversations often lead us to agriculture. And also, there's no getting away from the fact that we do emit a lot of methane because of agriculture. And there's also no getting away from the fact that methane is a potent greenhouse gas, which is about 28 times more powerful than carbon dioxide at warming the earth on a 100 year timescale. That's according to the National Geographic. Another figure from them, there are 1.4 billion cattle in the world, and that number is growing as demand for beef and dairy increases across the world. In Ireland, we're grappling with the question of how to reduce our own agriculture emissions by up to 30% in the next decade. To talk about all the talk about cows, without getting into frenetic debate, I'm going to be joined today by Trevor Donlan, who is Head of Economics at Chagask. Chagask is a semi-state body which is responsible for the agri-food sector, and Trevor was also a member of the recent Climate Budgets Committee, so he will be armed with the cold hard facts going into today's chat. And also on the line is the Good Information Project's Orla Dwyer from COP26 in Glasgow. Orla, I think you're on a floor somewhere in the blue zone um, in Glasgow in the in the COP26 conference centre. Can you tell us a little bit about this latest cycle of the Good Information Project and what areas you guys have been focusing on? Yeah, of course. So it was myself and Lauren Boland, another reporter at The Journal, who took the lead on this one. And we looked at a lot of different issues all related to climate change. So we looked at EU policies around it, climate finance abroad, how coastal erosion might impact railway lines, like a lot of different issues like that that impact Ireland specifically. We looked at rewilding and the biodiversity crisis. So we looked at a whole lot of different issues. And obviously, this is such a huge topic So it is hard to get it all covered within the six weeks. But obviously, this is something that will not be going away anytime soon. So our coverage as well will will still be there across the board. And from what we can hear there, you are obviously in a busy room. You travel to COP26. Can you give us a sense of what the conference has been like so far? Has there been any real action um, or real progress achieved there? Yeah, so as, as you said, I am sitting on a floor right now as I couldn't find a chair somewhere that was quiet enough to talk about this. But the conference so far has been really interesting. So I'm in the, the blue zone at the moment, where, which is where all the main negotiations take place, all the big events. It's where Barack Obama was yesterday. It's where Greta Thunberg has been spotted. 
and it's where the negotiations as well are taking place. So they're the kind of main thing that's going on in the second week of the conference, which is where we're at right now. And there is this strange atmosphere in the both the main zone and outside the main zone. So in, in the area I'm in now, it's it's where all the diplomats are, it's where all the heads of government are, it's where things are happening, or at least it feels that way. But then on the outside, you have all the protests that have been going on since the start of it. Friday and Saturday were the, the main days of those, and I headed out to those um, across the streets of Glasgow. And it was really just very jarring to kind of have that passion about climate change and climate action and climate justice and how we need to be bringing everyone along towards, you know, getting cleaner economies, reducing emissions across the board and not leaving any countries behind in that. And then coming back into the official proceedings and having all these serious business people who are, you know, going around being very professional and key diplomats and you're, you're queuing beside them to use the bathroom. You're kind of rubbing shoulders with everyone. But in terms of real action, then it's a bit too soon to say because there is still a few days left. This week is really the main time when the negotiations are happening. The first week is a bit more of a, a fanfare, I suppose you could describe it as, especially the first couple of days when people like the Taoiseach, Boris Johnson, all the key world leaders were out giving their speeches and giving these high, lofty ambitions for what they're planning to do on climate action in the decades ahead. And now we're getting down to the actual small print of what that means. And the main thing they're trying to do is just finalise the details of the Paris Agreement, which is the the deal that was struck in 2015 at the, the COP summit that year in Paris, where they agreed to try and strive to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees or well below two degrees. And that's kind of the crux of the goals of that agreement. And now they're just getting the, the smaller details of that finalised. That's what they're trying to do at this COP. And as part of that, obviously, agriculture does form part of the debate. We're here today to talk about cows and specifically Irish cows. How much has agriculture been on your radar there in your reporting? Probably not enough because agriculture is obviously, you know, a crucial element of emissions, especially in Ireland, where it accounts for more than a third of our of all of our greenhouse gas emissions, um, especially methane. Obviously, 90 percent of our methane emissions comes from agriculture, too. So it, it, it is a huge part of the discussions but agriculture itself doesn't have its own day at COP. So every day at the summit has a different theme. There's no specific agriculture day, but it has been in a lot of different discussions around nature, which was on Saturday, adaptation, which was the theme on Monday. And, you know, there are a lot of discussions happening around helping small farmers change their practices, move to more environmentally friendly ways of working. So it is a huge part of the climate discussion in general. And there has been a methane pledge made. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this was a a pledge signed by more than 100 countries and it essentially sets out to reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030. But as said at a lot of the briefings here, any pledge that's signed by such a huge number of countries, it really needs a lot of scrutiny because it's really hard to find consensus around climate and around anything on such a huge global basis. So for Ireland, this means that we're not actually planning on reducing our emissions by 30%. The Taoiseach, Eamon Ryan, and have all been around speaking about this. We're looking to cut ours more by about 10% by 2030. And what the politicians have been saying is that by signing up to this pledge, they aren't agreeing on a country level 30% cut. So it's essentially what they're saying, every country doing the most that they can to reduce methane emissions. But methane is a really potent greenhouse gas. And as Barack Obama was set a cop as well earlier this week, is that cutting methane is the fastest and most effective way to limit global warming in the years ahead. So it is a really crucial greenhouse gas to be paying attention to. 
after your days there and obviously you have a few days left what has your sense of um climate action been do you think it is something that glasgow will have changed do you think some there will be a step change in the political action or even the media coverage of it is there any sense that you think we won't go back to where we were three months ago I think in terms of the politics and the media coverage, this this will be a moment of change. But in terms of actual action, I think it might still take a bit more time. I think we're, we're hearing a lot more from politicians in India and China as well. You know, the, the panic, which is kind of a crucial word that has been thrown around here, just the panic around climate change is becoming more clear on a political level rather than just scientists yelling about the situation that we're in and nobody really listening. Like, I think what has been said as well is that we've moved beyond discussions around what we need to do when we need to do it you know what kind of changes need to be made we know what changes need to be made we know that it needs to be done as soon as possible but definitely by 2030 by 2050 we need to be reaching net zero emissions you know these things have been set out so we we know the journey ahead i just don't know if glasgow will be the end point it obviously won't be we will have you know a cop 27 a cop 28 there will be more negotiations in the years ahead but I'm hopeful there will be some kind of an agreement anyways at the end of the day but it'll be scrutinizing the the details of that agreement that'll be the important thing yeah the debates are often around how to get to the point that we all need to know we need to get to and who is going to get us there and that brings us probably uh to bringing you in trevor because one of the things um that we deal with in ireland is the debate and it's quite an intense debate a lot of the time about the role of agriculture the role of farmers in climate action um and there's some water boundary and then a lot of questions over the last maybe week or two is like why are we hearing so much about irish cows so that's kind of what we're getting into uh, today. So, but before we get into the real nitty gritty, we just want to make sure that everyone's able to follow us. So I have some basic terms, some I do know, some I only know recently, um, and some I do know because I am the granddaughter of a dairy farmer. But um, what is a suckler cow? Okay, Sinead, a suckler cow is a, a type of cow that we have in Ireland that doesn't actually produce any milk that we would drink or would be turned into dairy products because in the case of a suckler cow they produce a calf and the calf drinks that milk and that calf then eventually grows up will either become a cow or may uh, just be raised for slaughter to to become beef for uh, the dinner plate so a suckler cow is a different kind of cow to a dairy cow a dairy cow is the one that produces the the milk that you buy in the shop or the, the cheese or ice cream. So they're, they're two different types of cows. And in Ireland, up until relatively recently, we had more or less equal numbers of, of, of both of them. So a suckler cow basically is beef and a dairy cow is a dairy cow. Yeah. And, and a steer and a heifer, if people know those terms, where would they fall into which category? Yeah, a steer um, a steer is a, is a young male bovine. I suppose what we need to do here in this conversation is avoid calling them cows because in the general terminology of your average person, everything that goes moo is a cow. But, that, you know, <laughs> we need to get more technical here. A steer or a bullock, as it's called sometimes in Ireland, is basically a a male bovine that has had his bits removed. Um, so, um, you know, that that's not going to turn into a bull, basically. So they're, they're basically male male bovines that are going to be raised to produce beef. And uh, heifer is basically a young female bovine that hasn't yet 
hasn't hit yet had a calf. Uh, so some of those heifers will eventually produce calves and uh, so they become cows at that stage because they can then produce milk. But a lot of them don't. We only need about 40% of, of the, the heifers to actually become cows in the end. So the rest of those heifers, like the steers, will go off and, and basically be slaughtered for, for beef production. But in the end, all of these bovine animals will eventually end up in the meat factory and, and will be end up on a dinner plate somewhere or other. So that's the differences between the bovine sorted. But when it comes to emissions, what's the difference between beef and dairy farming and their contribution to Ireland's overall emissions? I guess there's a few things to consider here. The first thing, you know, if you think about dairy farms compared to farms that would have uh, beef animals on them, those farms tend to be different in size. The dairy farms tend to be a good deal larger than, than the beef farms just in terms of their area. And also dairy farms tend to have more animals per hectare. So we, we have a lot more animals typically on a dairy farm than we would say on your typical uh, beef farm. And I'm just talking about averages here now. Uh, there'll be exceptions obviously to, to these things. But typically that means that uh, your dairy farm would produce a lot more emissions than would, would your beef farm. Now, the flip side of all that is that we only have about 15,000 dairy farms in the country. So there's probably about five or six beef farms in the country for every dairy farm. So we've a lot more beef farms, but they're smaller farms. And the dairy farms tend to be ones that individually, anyway, at least produce quite a lot of emissions. And how does that fit into Ireland's total emissions in terms of how much does agriculture play a part in all of our emissions from everywhere and all industries? Yeah, well, agriculture in Ireland is a little over one third of the, the total greenhouse gas emissions that are produced in Ireland. So that's that's quite a significant percentage. It's it's a lot higher than what you would typically find in a developed country. And if you went to a less developed country where the agriculture sector tends to be a big sector, that wouldn't be unusual. But it is unusual for a developed country. And it, it, it largely reflects the fact that we have a lot of cattle and actually a very small human population. So that human population is not generating very much in the way of greenhouse gas emissions in totality, if you know what I mean, in terms of the other activities that generate emissions in the economy. So is it as a result of that agriculture then looks like it's a, it's a big share of emissions. But I don't think people should get the impression that there's a very big cattle population in Ireland because there's about six or seven million cattle in Ireland. And, you know, if you go over to the UK, there's probably about nine or 10 million cattle there. So it's not like there's an extraordinary large cattle population here. It's just that we don't have very many people. Is there a difference or much of a difference between the emissions caused by the animals that we've just gone through? So the, the, the dairy farm animals versus the beef farm animals? Pretty much the way to think about this in the end is the more an animal eats, uh, the more emissions it's going to produce. So that means that bigger uh, animals that are more mature, for example, cows will produce more greenhouse gas emissions than we'll say younger animals that are calves or a year or two years of age. So amongst all the categories of bovines, dairy cows are, are on a per head basis are the largest emitters because they would, all, would also be the largest consumers of, of energy, basically. And it's a in the end, it's a, it's a biological process. So whatever the animal consumes and digests determines in the end how much 
uh, emissions it's going to produce. And then do other animals get off easy because we do focus on cows like chicken farms, for example, like do they have a lot of emissions? No, uh, they don't because uh, the, the the big issue, I guess, with uh, bovines are, are ruminants generally. So rum, when I say ruminants, I mean cattle and sheep. Uh, if you think all the way back to uh, what you might have learned in, in nature in primary school or something like that, or even in, in uh, secondary school in, in biology, you might remember hearing about the fact that cows had four stomachs and uh, the same is, is, is true of uh, sheep and it just reflects the fact that their digestive system to digest grass uh, ends up in producing um, methane gas basically as part of the, the digestion process. So it is largely, the methane gas is largely confined to um, to cattle and to, and to sheep. The emissions from things like chickens and pigs uh, in, in Ireland, you know, they're, they're, they're quite minor, you know. And then in terms of the industry that takes over from, from the farmyard, so is there an issue with the gases that are emitted, like once milk is being processed or once if the animal is being slaughtered? Does that all come into play when you're thinking about um, the carbon budgets for agriculture? No, it, do, it doesn't really, uh, to be honest. Uh, what you're kind of talking about there is thinking about the kind of what we call the full life cycle analysis. Now, you can do these life cycle analyses, things for all manner of goods that you could buy from, you know, anything from food to the clothes that you're wearing. In If we, if we think about food and we think about specifically the ones we've been talking about, which are milk products and beef, most of the emissions that are in what you end up consuming are caused at the uh, in the farm stage. So, you know, processing uh, the milk or the cattle into beef and transporting it around to shops and, and selling it to you. Uh, that's not really where the emissions are generated. Most of the emissions are generated at the farm stage. And that goes back to, as I said, the, uh, principally the fact that these animals produce um methane emissions which is a greenhouse gas all of this is so fascinating trevor and there's one thing that i think we need to catch up our listeners on because when you look at what happened with milk quotas in the last few years in the last few decades it's really important to what we're talking about here can you explain what milk quotas are and what shifts we have seen over the decades with them yeah i I thought i'd never be talking about uh milk quotas ever again i spent a lot of time talking about them at an earlier stage in my career. The milk quota system, just to give a brief summary, is a system that was introduced not by not by the Irish government in particular. That, that has been a kind of mischaracterization, I suppose, in some of the media in, in of late. The milk quota system was introduced by the European Union or at the EC, as it then was back in, in 1984. And it basically was intro- introduced to limit the amount of milk that would be produced in the EEC, as it then was, to try to stabilise dairy farmers' um, incomes. So that system stayed in place then for uh, over 30 years. And um, there was uh, more milk being produced in uh, the EEC, as it was at at the time, than um, was uh, willing to be consumed by consumers in the European Union. So the the EU was having to export its surplus into other markets and it was having to do that at subsidised prices because the price level in other parts of the world was lower and we wouldn't have been able to sell into those markets without subsidising 
We had what were called butter mountains as well. Older listeners might remember hearing about those back in, in the past. So yeah, there was an excess of production um, in, in Europe at the time. And uh, the way to kind of deal with that and stop production increasing further was to, to put a cap basically on how much milk would be produced. So that system lasted for about uh, 30 years or so. And about 10 years ago, a decision was taken to actually gradually increase the amount of milk that farmers would be allowed to produce across Europe. And then in 2015, the system was completely eliminated. And the reason that happened is because uh, the world had changed from the way it was back in the in the early 1980s and there's much more demand uh, at a European level and for that matter internationally at a global level for for dairy products. So the European Union felt that dairy farmers were missing out on an opportunity here to be able to produce more milk and to service the, the growing global market for dairy products. So that's why the, the milk quota was eliminated Um at that point in time. And of course, we're, we're, we're so good at producing milk in Ireland. Um, farmers can produce milk in Ireland at, uh, in a very profitable way. But farmers responded to this by increasing the number of cows they had and producing uh, more milk per cow. So the number of dairy cows has increased as a result over um, pretty much since about two 2012 or 2013 or thereabouts, the number of dairy cows in the country has been increasing. But what has also been happening in the background is that the suckler cow numbers have been going down. And the reason they've been going down is because it's the flip of the dairy story, basically. Uh, Farmers who have suckler cows don't make very much money at all. And uh, gradually over time, as a result of that, farmers have been getting out of producing beef uh, and as a result of that, fewer suckler cows in the country than there would have been previously. So overall, the total number of cows in the country and the total number of cattle in the country then, for that matter, hasn't changed uh, enormously over time. And uh, I suppose that part is missing from the story because when people hear that, oh, dairy cow numbers have increased substantially, they imagine that the total cattle population has increased substantially but that that actually isn't the case and it again comes back to people confusing the term cow with anything that goes moo basically as i said at the start yeah what numbers are we talking about then so if you break it down into um dairy farming and 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 suckler cows okay uh, well we have at this well if you think about the totality of what's there and you know if you add up all the cattle that are in the country and that will include cows it will include the, the heifers and steers we talked about earlier, it will include bulls and it will include calves. Um, so, you know, depending on the time of year, it varies from one time of the year to the next. But you have about uh, 7 million or thereabouts of uh, a cattle population in the country. And then within that, you have uh, something over 2 million uh, cows in total, probably heading closer to uh, 2.5 million uh, at this stage. And about uh, 1.4, 1.5 million of those would be dairy cows and about 900,000 or thereabouts would be suckler cows. And then everything else is younger animals, basically, that are either being raised for beef or to become the next generation of, of cows or bulls. 
And because of those quotas being abolished and the number of dairy farmers being able to take advantage of that and increasing uh, the number of cows that they have on their farm, is that something that has was flagged at the time that we could actually be looking at increased emissions or was it policy that was taken without thinking about the climate change implications? Um, I, I think I think a couple of things have happened, I guess, Sinead. I'm, I don't think people expected... Uh, certainly I didn't, and, and I think a lot of people didn't expect the increase, the extent of the increase we've seen in the in the dairy cow population in such a short period of time. I think we all thought the dairy cow population was going to grow and grow quite strongly, but it's actually grown um, at a faster rate in a shorter period of time than I think we had uh, anticipated. Part of that is down to the fact that dairy markets have generally been very good uh, in, in recent years. So it's been quite profitable for farmers to do that. And part of it then as well, I guess, is that we've had this switch in policy at a, at a government level, the introduction of that 51% greenhouse gas reduction target uh, as part of um, the, the current government's policy. So I guess two things happened very quickly. We suddenly were, were trying to reduce emissions by much more than we thought uh, we were going to talk about because previously the target to reduce uh, emissions nationally by 2030 was around um, 30%. I know we're, we're aiming for a 51% reduction. So agriculture is producing more emissions than we, we thought it would. And suddenly we have a very, very steep national target to achieve in terms of greenhouse gas emission um, reductions. So it what it really reflects, I guess, is changing circumstances. I don't know that anybody in 2015 was thinking that Ireland by 2030 was planning to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by, by 51%, but, but here we are now and that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, and those policy decisions obviously have led us to where we are now, talking about an increase in emissions. But what is being done at national level now to reduce those emissions? Or have we even got to that part yet? Are we still in debate level? Yeah, a lot, a lot needs to happen. Uh, now, a lot needs to happen in every sector. I, I, I think I have to say that as the first thing, Sinead, I, I know we're talking here about agriculture, but a lot will need to happen across all sectors of the economy because all that has happened really to this point is that we've decided on reduction targets for the national economy and for individual sectors of the economy. And targets aren't policies. What we need next uh, across all of the economy, including agriculture, is policies that will allow us to get to those targets. You know, So if we think about the transport sector, for example, we need policies that will incentivize people to buy electric cars. We need to make sure that the charging network and all that stuff is set up properly so that people are happy uh, to use them. Going back to agriculture, we'll need policies to encourage farmers to adopt the kind of technologies they'll need to use to um, reduce their emissions. So that will involve farmers using less fertilizer than they did in the past because fertilizer is a source of greenhouse gas emissions as well. Farmers will also have to use different types of fertilizers that don't um, emit uh, as much, as much uh, emissions. Farmers will have to look at using different types of farm machinery to spread slurry on the fields. Slurry is the animal waste that, that builds up when animals are indoors in the wintertime. And that's used as fertilizer on the fields to help grass grow. And they'll have to use different technologies 
to do that. And the big benefit of that as well is that that nasty smell you get sometimes when you go out into the countryside won't uh, won't be as bad anymore. So uh, farmers can do other things as well. Farmers can plant trees, for example, uh, because those will sequester carbon. And in addition to that, farmers can look at getting involved in the renewable energy sector. Farmers can grow crops that um, can be used to produce bioenergy. Uh, they can get involved in uh, installation of wind turbines to produce electricity and, and the same with solar panels, to, again, to produce electricity. So they can look at um, better animals that don't, that don't produce as much emissions, basically better, better bread, uh, cattle, uh, essentially in the future. And then um, what could be a big game changer for us in the future would be if we can um, perfect technologies that are starting to come into play now that will significantly reduce the amount of methane that these animals produce when they're when they're digesting what they, they, they eat. So that could be a big a big game changer in terms of the amount of methane that uh, your, your your typical cow or other type of uh, animal uh, or bovine animal produces. How close are we to technology like that? We're very close to that technology already in respect of animals that are um, bovines that are kept indoors. Like one of the things people need to understand is, you know, when you drive around the countryside in Ireland, you'll see cows in the fields most of the year and um, you won't see them out in the fields from around this point on till kind of february time because they'll be they'll be indoors uh, for the winter because the grass won't be growing the fields will be uh sodden with rain and the animals would just trample the grass into the ground and, and and destroy it but if you go to other parts of the world uh, you'll find animals are kept indoors for for much longer periods because they have longer winters or animals might be kept indoors the whole year round on the basis that the climate might not be very nice for, for cattle. Cattle don't like cattle are like Irish people. They don't they start to get <laughs> they, they start to get they start to get um a bit anxious once temperatures get over about twenty five degrees. So um so you, you, you have parts of the world where cattle are kept indoors for much more time much more of the year and they're fed a different type of diet. They're not eating grass directly from the field. And there's already technologies in place now where we can add feed additives to the um, the diet that those animals are eating indoors, that that actually reduces their methane emissions. The problem at the moment with that technology is that we don't have a way of doing that with grass that's being eaten in the field. So we need to find a mechanism to be able to to do that, to be able to reduce the animals' emissions when they're eating grass in the field. So we, that that that's the part of that technology that needs to be um, cracked. Yeah, because obviously it's a unique selling point for things like Irish butter, that it's grass-fed cows. So obviously farmers won't want to give up the, that idea that the, the grass-fed cow is the special cow for them. Sure. I mean, they, and again, it comes back to, again, things like animal welfare and stuff like that. I think most people would prefer uh, to be eating dairy products from cows that live most of their lives outdoors in a natural environment in a field compared to cows that spend most of their times most of their time indoors in, in a barn or a shed, you know. The list you gave us there a minute ago, things like the fertilizer, renewable energies, things that farmers can do. Is reducing emissions all about the practices of individual farmers or are there more blunt measures that can be taken at a national level that could do the job for us as well? Yeah, I mean, there are there, there are always blunt measures uh, for, for, for a lot of policies. Um, 
I suppose the general public in respect of anything doesn't like blunt measures because blunt measures sometimes will um, disadvantage some people to a greater extent than, than they will um, will others. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you could come along and, for example, restrict the amount of fertilizer that could be sold in Ireland. You know, you could do that. You could come along and do something like that. A limit, instead of having a quota on the amount of milk that farmers could produce, you could have a quota on the amount of fertilizer they were allowed to use, which would limit the amount of grass then that would actually grow. And that would in turn limit the amount of production that, that could be produced and the amount of emissions ultimately that could be produced. So, but it would be a very blunt instrument to, to implement uh, as well. You know, if you were, uh, the big problem with some of these limitations when they're brought in is that you might have somebody who's just invested lots of money and has a, a plan to increase the size of their farm significantly over the next few years. And then suddenly they're told, sorry, you can't do that. And that's very similar to what happened to some farmers in Ireland back in the early 80s when the milk quota system was introduced because suddenly uh, this business plan that they and on the borrowings that they had arranged from the bank and the repayment schedule, which was all based on their farm being having a particular level of profitability each year out into the future, all that was taken away effectively by the fact that they were no longer able to produce the amount of milk they thought they would be allowed to produce. So you need to be careful, I suppose, in, in terms of implementing things in a blunt way. Um, they can be fast and they can be effective, but you know you may end up um, solving one problem and creating a whole series of um, of new ones. And finally, Trevor, just one last question for you. Is there a limit on how sustainable cattle farming can ever be? Or could we reach a point of carbon neutrality or even completely emission-free farming? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's impossible to, to predict the, the long-term future accurately. Who knows what will be possible in 2050 or or at the end of this uh, century. But at the moment, I think, just thinking of food production in a general sense, apart at all from the specifics of dairy and beef, it's very hard to see how we can have um, an agriculture sector that is um, a zero emissions um, agriculture uh, out into the future. Now, some technologies in the future may change that, um, but that's not the way it looks uh, at present. So what we'd be relying on, I think, is the technologies that are developed to reduce the amount of emissions that agriculture generates and probably then looking for other mechanisms to offset those emissions, such as, say, the carbon sequestration from uh, from more forestry, for example, so that what we call the net the net emissions would actually be zero. So you've you'll have you'll have some emissions being generated by agriculture, but being offset by other activities that farmers are engaged in, such as the planting of trees to sequester carbon. So it's hard to know for, for sure over the longer term, but um, you know, if you look across the economy, uh, food production is going to be one of the, the most challenging areas in terms of getting down to a situation where you have very low level of emissions. There's always equal levels, optimism and pessimism, or not always equal, but there's always a, a good chunk of optimism and a good chunk of pessimism in talking about climate change and climate action. And so we'll finish up on that note. Trevor, thank you so much for coming in and giving us that one-on-one -on, -one on agriculture. It's really, really appreciated. And Orla, best of luck with the rest of COP26, and we'll talk to you on your return. 
Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Trevor and Orla for joining us. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry. The Good Information Project is co-funded by Journal Media and a grant programme from the European Parliament. The European Parliament has no involvement in nor responsibility for the editorial content published by the project. As I said at the beginning of this episode, I am heading off on maternity leave for the next six to nine months, so I'm leaving you in the very capable hands of Michelle Hennessy and Grania Nia. You'll be hearing from Michelle next week and Grania afterwards. I'm looking forward to listening to all of their episodes and keeping up with the news through the explainer while I'm on leave. And I really look forward to catching you all again very soon. Thank you and talk to you then.